Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 122. Today's episode is titled, Whatever the In-Season Tournament Was Dumb Anyway. Bucks and Pacers semifinal round in Vegas. Didn't go that well for the Bucks. Looked like the Bucks had maybe been enjoying a little bit of the Vegas nightlife with the way they played most of the game, especially in the first half in an afternoon tilt on Thursday. The in-season tournament run comes to an end, and apparently there was, I don't want to say an altercation, that's being dramatic, but that's a part of getting clicks and listens, so we'll say there was an altercation. According to ESPN's Chris Haynes, there was a bit of a dust-up or a blow-up between Bobby Portis and head coach Adrian Griffin after yesterday's loss in Vegas as well. We'll talk about all of that. We will talk a little college basketball. Marquette, a nice bounce back against number 12 Texas on Wednesday. The Badgers get a road Big Ten win at Michigan State. This might not be the same Michigan State team that we have known over the years with Tom Izzo. Still, going to East Lansing is getting and getting a win is nothing to sneeze at for this Badger team as they have gotten the whole thing together after that Providence loss early in the year and guard called everybody out. They haven't lost since that game. And they've got a huge one this weekend at number one Arizona on Saturday. We will, of course, be discussing Packers and Giants as they get set for their Monday Night Football tilt. And maybe Corbin Burns is going to stay a Brewer after all, and Willie Adamas might too. That's what it sounds like. Nothing happening at the winter meetings. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20. Gordon, 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Wisconsin. Record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle. Face hit the center. Here comes Gomez. Around third. A throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws, and and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. I've got to play you a clip real quick. We blogged about this yesterday and just did a break on it on the air for the B93 Morning Show. This was one of the more disgusting videos. This is like a fear factor video that I saw on Twitter. I forget what account posted it. I cannot think of a cell phone that I have owned in my life that would be so near and dear to me that I would reach into the depths of the swamp of a porter potty in order to retrieve it. In fact, as I put in the blog, I cannot think of anything I own, not just cell phones. There's not one material item that I own in my life where at a football pregame or at a festival or whatever that I would reach into a porter potty to retrieve. I don't know how much cash you'd even have to put down there. If you put $10,000 cash at the bottom of a border body, I'm not sure I'm going in for that. There was a video making the rounds. It looks like at a college football tailgate or a block party or something. Everybody's wearing Ball State shirts and hoodies or whatever. And this girl was in the porter potty. She looks like she's late teens, early 20s. And she lost her phone. Her phone went into the abyss. 
and she she reached in to get it. I have I have puke in the back of my mouth just watching this. There could be some language in here. Everybody knows this has happened and is cheering her on as well. You got it. Beast I just I mean she is elbow deep. How? Why? Why would you do this? I love how they're talking her through it like she's in labor too. It's down there. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Be strong. And she does get it. Oh, it's tripping them. You have to amputate your arm, right? That's the only next logical conclusion. She's got to cut her arm off. As I put in the blog, whenever it is that COVID-20 is going to start making the rounds, which maybe it'll be six months, maybe it'll be a year, maybe it'll be two years, at least we know who patient zero is. Remember at the beginning of the COVID-19 and the coronavirus and all that in Wuhan, we were all trying to figure out, well, where did it start? Who was the first patient that had it? We have video evidence already. We know who it is. We just need to track her down wherever she is, wherever Ball State University is. I don't even know, Indiana? Is it in Indiana? I don't know. That is who patient zero is going to be. I I guess I've never been a big cell phone guy where I get in line and get the new one or spend $1,000 now on the new iPhone or the new Android. iPhone for life. Blue text for life. Blue text just like the blue water she was reaching into. I cannot think of a phone I've owned in my life where I would do that for it. You have insurance, right? Or even if you don't, maybe that was a part of the reason. Maybe it was a new phone that she did spend $1,000 on and it was a money reason. What could be on that that's not backed up on the cloud? What picture, what voicemail from a dead relative, what is on there that you would do that? I can't think of any reason to be reaching my arm into a porter potty at some kind of college block party. That makes it even worse. You know, sometimes... You go into a porter potty rarely, but sometimes you go in and there's not much going on in there. You can tell visually that it has not been used a ton. This looked like something that would be sitting outside of Mifflin Street Block Party for hours. Imagine what that thing looks like. Went in there to get that phone. I don't know how you use the phone again. Once you see, and when she pulls it out of there, there's drips coming off of it. I don't know that there's a disinfectant in the world or a cleaning process that you could put that phone through or I'm not going to be thinking about the liquid that was on it or what was surrounding it when I'm putting it up against my face or I'm touching it to text or play a game. I don't know, man. That was a wild video. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Packers-Giants game. There's not a ton to go over here. Injury reports we are keeping our eyes on. Aaron Jones did practice this week. He's on IR, though, so I'm not entirely sure what the protocol is to bring him back if you would have to be lifted off of that or you have to make a roster move. He was practicing. Jair Alexander also practicing. That was the case, though, last week where he practiced every day and it looked like he was going to play, and then he was inactive on game day. I was listening to some Milwaukee sports radio this week. I forget what show it was, and it was hinted by a Packer beat reporter pretty strongly that there is at least at minimum a rift. Is that what it is? A rift or a rift? A riff off between Matt LaFleur and Jair Alexander. There's not necessarily a meeting of the eyes there. And remember early in the year when this team was bottoming out a bit, was it after the Vegas game where Jair gave that really agitating interview? We played a part of it on the podcast where he just said, I don't know. I don't know. Every question. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. And it felt like maybe that was a little bit of a shot at LaFleur, but apparently that's a real thing. There is a real knocking of heads there between LaFleur and Jair Alexander. He is practicing whether or not he plays on Monday. Who knows? They have the extra day. The one that I think means the most, and you'd love to have Aaron Jones come back. I don't even know. Do you want Jair back? We do, right? He's still one of the best corners in the league. 
we're at a point, though, right now where this team, with all of the injuries, they have come together. That young secondary has come together, and A.J. Dillon's starting to get it going. Don't get me wrong. You want to see your talented players come back. You do worry a little bit, though, about how this team has grown in their absence. And then when you bring them back, you think, oh, we're going to get this talent back. Well, maybe that disrupts this new chemistry they have. Maybe that throws a little bit of a rupture in the middle of what they're building when you bring back the talented veterans that have been on the injury list for a while. You want the talent. You always want talent. I just I worry about that with a young team that's coming together, that's winning games where they're almost double-digit underdogs going into those games, and then you start throwing the chemistry off a little bit. I don't know. You want Aaron Jones, though, back, right, in Jair? We do, right? The one that I think matters the most, though, right now is Christian Watson. He went down at the end of that Kansas City game when he was trying to take a knee and his clear as hamstring kind of gave out on him. It's a hamstring strain with those soft tissue issues. Even if it's not that bad, it feels like he's going to be out at least a week or two. He did not practice this week. That's one to keep an eye on. Even if he gets back to 75 or 80% with that kind of an injury, You just don't want to risk it. And given his history and his history with soft tissue issues like hamstring issues, I don't know that you risk putting him out there at 65, 70, 75% in a game like this. You want to get him at 100 or 105% before he's back out there because of the problems he's had staying on the field. That's one to keep an eye on in terms of injuries. We do know the Giants are going with Tommy DeVito. He's an interesting story, I have to admit. I hope this doesn't come back to bite us where this underdog story ends up getting a win on Monday. Have you read about Tommy DeVito? Third string quarterback for the Giants. It did look early in the week. They designated Tyrod Taylor, who I didn't even remember is in the league anymore. Had some good years in Buffalo and somewhere else too. I forget where. He's a competent quarterback. And remember we talked on Monday's podcast about now you're going to play games, and specifically this Monday, a game against a team where you are now favored to win. And how is this young Packer team going to react now in a situation where they are expected to and where they're almost touchdown favorites? And I said, you worry a little bit about this upstart third-string quarterback and you're on the road and it's prime time and the Giants have won a few games now. Can this young team, this young Packer team that is going to be expected to win take care of business on the road against a team like the Giants. Then early in the week when I heard Tyrod Taylor's coming back, my stomach rumbled a little bit and said, oh boy, now they're going to have actually a competent, good quarterback who has a history in the NFL. You could just see it playing out where Tyrod Taylor leads them to some 21-17 win. He is not going to play. They already named Tommy DeVito the starter, but it is a pretty neat story. He is, a, I think, a born and raised Giants fan. He's a New York native. He still lives with his family. His mom still cooking him chicken parms on the weekend. He's living that Italian lifestyle where he's with his mom and his dad, and he's, I don't know how old he is, 23, 24 years old. He's still living at home as an NFL quarterback. And his family's at every game. They had a big Italian family. They cut to them in the crowd. I'm sure they'll do it on Monday night. He is a fun story. Let's hope it's not fun at the expense of the Packers on Monday. But that is the biggest question to me. In addition to the injuries, How is this team now going to react to, okay, we're favored? I can't even tell you. The last time they were favored was probably week one, right, against the Bears? Maybe in week two? And then there was the big dip and the loss to Vegas and the loss to Denver and the two-touchdown loss to the Vikings before this resurgence. They are going to be favored in every game with maybe the exception of Minnesota. Of the last five games, that's the only game I could see right now. And again, injuries could play a part. There could be a catastrophic injury on one side or the other before the end of the year. That would impact the spread. As things stand right now, they will be the favorites in four of their final games, including this Monday. 
and it is likely they will be the favorites in all five of their remaining games. That Minnesota game feels like it could be a pick or maybe the Packers could end up being a one or one-and-a-half point favorite before that game, the second-to-last week of the year. Is that the New Year's Eve game? That's on Sunday Night Football, I think, in Minnesota. Anyway, now with the lights a little brighter and your graphic, your logo, your team logo firmly in a playoff spot right now, and all of the discussion, even nationally, has been about this team's renaissance and Jordan Love getting better and the offensive line getting better and storming back from 3-6 and six where it looked like they could be on the verge of a top 5 or top 3 pick if they kept on losing. Now all of a sudden they're 6-6 six and six and they're beating quality teams. They beat the first place Lions on a short week at their place with an injury list a mile long. The injury list was still a mile long and they beat the reigning Super Bowl champs at home in prime time. Now that there's been some conversation around this team, and it looks like they're potentially honing in on a playoff spot, now how do they react? I said on, was it a week ago then, heading into Chiefs weekend, Chefs weekend? I said then, the Chiefs game, to me, win or lose, doesn't really matter. That's not, it matters. But you know what I mean? In terms of whether or not this team is going to make the playoffs, I stand by what we said last Friday. The record in the last five games where they are going to be favored, that will determine if this team makes the playoffs by the end of the year, are they going to go 5-0? and They could. Let's not freak out if they lose a game. I believe 4-1 and gets you to 10 wins. That gets you in. I believe 3-2, and 9 wins probably gets you in with the state of the bottom of the NFC. It's just going to be another step in the evolution of this team, of the youngest team in the NFL, to now see how they react when they are not only favorites, but touchdown road favorites, which really means they're about 10-point favorites heading into the weekend against a Giants team that they should beat. But the Giants are going to have something to play for. They've got a lot of young talent on that team. And again, Tommy DeVito, he's not going out there to lose. This is his chance to stake his claim to an NFL roster maybe for a few years and cash an NFL paycheck and move on to mom and dad's house and all that kind of stuff. They're going to be game, I would think, on Monday. And I do not think this Packer team is one yet. Maybe they'll prove us wrong or prove me wrong on Monday. Even with the win against Kansas City, even with the win against the Lions and the win against the Chargers, I don't feel like this is a team that is going to go into New York or against Tampa Bay in two weeks. It doesn't feel like they're a team that's going to go in and win by two touchdowns. Now, in the past, when Aaron Rodgers was here and he was a Hall of Famer and you had pro bowlers up and down the roster, this is the kind of game you would expect them to win 37-14. to I don't know that this young Packer team is at that level yet. Just go in there. We don't care what the final score is and get a win. If it's 21-17, if it's 17-14, if you do go in and win 28-17 or 35-17, all the better. I'm just not sure I'm there yet with this team in a game like Monday's game will be where you're expected to win, that they're going to go in and actually win by 10 points, by 14 points, by 21 points. Just take care of business and continue to grow. Even as now expectations have changed, the MO from me is still the same. You want to win now and you want them to make the playoffs and get the experience and all that good stuff. We do want to continue to see progress. There are still going to be bumps in the road. Not to say they can't lose one of these games. Not to say Jordan Love couldn't have a one-touchdown, three-pick game in one of these games. He's not going to go out there and throw three or four touchdowns and not turn the ball over every single game, even though that's the precedent he's set now in the past three weeks. There are going to be bumps in the road for him, too. Just take care of business and prove now that you can beat teams that you are expected to beat starting this Monday with New York. We're not going to do, because the Packers are playing better. We were really leaning on those Packer memories when it looked like this this entire season was going to be a drift. 
The Packer-Giant rivalry, though, there are some interesting chapters, even going all the way back to the Lombardi days, some of the first championship games. Two, The first two wins in NFL championship games for Lombardi were against the Giants. One was a blowout. One was very close. In my lifetime, the rivalry between these two teams is so complicated because I have some very warm memories of Packer-Giants games, and we have some very frigid memories of Packer-Giants games. Memories that, quite frankly, if the Men in Black Neuralizer ever became a thing, those might be some of the first things I want erased from the sports part of my brain. I do think back to that Super Bowl season of 2010. Remember, it was the week before, the second to last week of the year, so the third to last week of the year where the Giants were playing the Eagles, and Deshaun Jackson, the miracle at the Meadowlands, had that punt return for a touchdown that helped the Eagles get past the Giants. That is the only thing that gave the Packers even a little bit of a crack in the playoff window. If Deshaun Jackson does not return that punt for a touchdown and the Eagles don't beat the Giants that previous week, then the Packers don't get in. And that whole run, getting the sixth seed, winning that last week of the year against the Bears, and then making the run and storming through Atlanta and beating the Bears in the NFC Championship game at Soldier Field and the win against the Steelers in the in the Super Bowl, none of that happens without that Deshaun Jackson punt return for a touchdown. Then the next week, my buddy Pat and I went to the Packer-Giants game at Lambeau Field. I'm pretty certain going into that game with the way things set up after that Eagles win, that Packer fans and the Packers knew, okay, if we win our final two games, there were two home games, one against the Giants and one against the Bears, the Bears, that they would get in. I'm pretty sure they knew at that point, win two and you are in. And we had such a good time, and they crushed the Giants that day. They just obliterated them. I want to say it was 45-10 to 10 or 45-17. to 17. And that was about as good as that Packer team had looked that year. And given the new circumstances of, okay, we can get into the dance here, and the way they performed that day against a good team, you started to think things were maybe turning a bit. Okay, I don't know that we thought they'd win the Super Bowl, but maybe get in, make a little noise. They made a statement that day, and then they beat the Bears 10-3 in the finale, and the rest is history. That is a memory that comes to mind. Of course, you can't think of the Packer-Giant rivalry and not think about Eli Manning and the 2007 NFC Championship game, and Brett Favre looking like a snow cone out there where he just didn't want to be there, and eventually ends up with that terrible pick, and you end up losing the NFC Championship game, what was it, 23-20? And then the other one you think of, too, is the 2011 divisional round. Of all of the playoff failures in the Aaron Rodgers era, I think we went over this at some point, Clearly the number one game that pops into your head in the Rodgers era is the fumbling of the 2014 NFC Championship game. I think about that one, though, more when you consider that team was 15-1, and absolutely loaded on offense, had an okay defense, a top 15 defense. They were healthy. They were the number one seed. They had that locked up the in week 14, I believe. That was a year where they should have at least gotten back to a Super Bowl and then just appeared out of sync in that divisional round game. You think of that one. And then years later... Was it 2016 or 2017? They had the wild card game against the Giants at Lambeau Field. That was a game where Randall Cobb had three touchdowns. They had a Hail Mary from Rodgers to Cobb in that game, and they smoked the Giants. There's a lot of up and down with this Packer-Giant rivalry, especially as it relates to their playoff matchups over the years. But it should be a fun one. Monday night, hopefully the Packers can take care of business. You get over 500 for the first time since the win against the Saints that got them to 2-1 and one in the home opener in Week 3. And you continue to solidify yourself as a potential playoff team. Now, I do want to do a quick housekeeping note, and we'll mention this again at the end of the podcast. 
We are going to do a podcast on Tuesday. It just makes more sense to do it on Tuesday following the game. There's not much more to really go over on Monday that would necessitate a half an hour podcast. I don't even know if we could squeeze 20 minutes of content on Monday. Maybe we could. Maybe we could. it could be a test. Over under 27 and a half minutes of content on Monday. No, we're going to wait until Tuesday. We will wait for that game to play out, and we'll do a recap of that game for Tuesday. Tuesday podcast instead of a Monday. Tuesday, Friday next week. What else? We'll talk about the in-season tournament. Before we talk about the Pacer-Bucks game last night, I do want to say it does seem like this in-season tournament does get a little bit of juice going for the players, gets a little bit of juice going for the fans. My buddy Paul and I went to the game on Wednesday at Fiserv. It was a great atmosphere, and one of the reasons it was a great atmosphere is because this was not a game that was offered to season ticket holders because you don't know who's going to be in the quarterfinal round. You don't know who the home teams are going to be. You don't know what dates they're going to be played, or maybe you know the dates. You don't know who's going to be involved or where it's going to be. That game was not a part of the season ticket package. So you saw Bradley Center pricing on Wednesday. You saw BOGOs. You saw tickets on StubHub going for 5 or 6 bucks in the upper tank. You could get lower-level tickets for 20 bucks. Because of that, it was a Bradley Center crowd. Now, at no point am I ever going to want to take back getting the new arena and the Giannis era and winning the title and this team becoming a perennial title contender for the last each of the last five or six years. This is a fever dream in every sense of the word if you're a diehard Bucks fan, especially if you're a diehard Bucks fan who is my age, who basically lived through 25 years of whatever that woman was reaching for in the, in the portage on for her cell phone. That's what it was. It still seems impossible that we're living in this era now with one of the best players on the planet, and every year they are a title contender, and they've got this sparkling new arena and all of that. One thing that I do miss about the Bradley Center era and the Herb Cole chasing down an eight-seat every year era is what we had on Wednesday. $5 tickets on StubHub. You could go to basically any weeknight game for a couple of bucks, sit with the degenerates in the upper tank, and it was a good time. And the Bradley Center crowd was loud. A part of that was the arena. It was a bigger arena. Sound seemed to reverberate a bit more on that brick or that cement facade and all those poles inside of that arena. I've been to many playoff games at Fiserv Forum. The only game I've been to playoff game-wise, or I guess really only game I've been to, no, I shouldn't say that. I went to a St. Patrick's Day Bucks sixers game with my cousins a few years ago that had a Bradley Center atmosphere to it, a raucous atmosphere. That was a close game. Giannis scored 50. I think Embiid scored 52. Anyway, the finals game was it. And we went to, my wife and I went to one of the Nets series games, one of the Eastern Conference finals games against the Hawks that year, and game four against the Suns. The finals game, which you would expect against the Suns, had a very Bradley Center atmosphere where I was sweating. I left that game with a headache because I was screaming so loud. That's how it always was at the Bradley Center. And a part of why it was that way is because tickets were so cheap and you had more of a common fan going to the game, the people that really lived and died with the team because they wanted to be there and those were affordable tickets. With this now being a title team and with the amount of money infused in the franchise and the new arena and all that stuff, it is a little bit more of a bougie crowd, shall we say. A little more of a tea and crumpet crowd. And that's fine. That's what's going to happen when you get to the level the Bucks are at. It was a nice reminder, though, on Wednesday of what those crowds, those old Bradley Center crowds used to be. It was kind of a raucous atmosphere as they beat the Knicks and almost scored 150 in that game. Now let's cut to yesterday in Vegas. The Bucks had the early game, 4 o'clock tip time locally, which meant 2 p.m. on a weekday in Vegas. I cannot imagine what the den of inequity in, in Las Vegas 
the kind of degenerates that were sitting in that game betting on the over-under with no rooting allegiance for the Pacers or the Bucks. Maybe a handful of Pacers and Bucks fans. In general, though, that was just a Vegas crowd that was looking to bet on the game. I did have to laugh. In the third quarter when things started to ramp up and more points were scored, the under hit. The over didn't hit. The over was some absurd total. I think that I read it was the highest total point total since, like, 1991. The over-under on total points for yesterday's Bucks pacers game was 256. And it makes sense. Pacers, the number one offense in the league. The Bucks, the number three offense in the league. Neither of them play great defense. But it was funny in the third quarter, there was that run where the Bucks were getting hot and Dame was getting hot and the Pacers were coming back in that third quarter. A lot of points were being put on the board. And Mike Breen, who was doing play-by-play yesterday, said, boy, this crowd seems to really be getting in this game. Well, yeah, Mike, I'm sure 80% of the crowd had the over. That's why they're just sitting in Vegas and they get this NBA game that they can go check out that will distract them from sitting at the craps table for the next eight hours. And they get a chance to bet the over. I bet most of the crowd had the over, and that's why you started to feel some energy in that building as more and more points are being scored. When we get down to the game itself, I don't know that we have to go too deeply into this. If you watched yesterday's game, I would just say, I know a hangover when I see one. Oh, that was one crazy party. I am hungover. That scene from Anchorman, <laughs> the post-party scene in the office the next day, that's what the Bucks looked like. When they were doing the intro package for the game and they showed the Bucks, here come the Bucks walking into Las Vegas Arena. And they showed Giannis walking in and he looked like he was a little bit rough. And then they showed Dame walking in. And in a dimly lit arena, Dame had gigantic black sunglasses on. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. This team was out celebrating on Wednesday. What was Wednesday? Giannis's 29th birthday. They put it on the Bucks Twitter page after practice on Wednesday. They brought him a cake, and they sang him happy birthday. As I started to see in that pregame show on ESPN, the players coming into the arena, and I began to connect the dots. Okay, Giannis's 29th birthday on a Wednesday in Vegas. Pretty good chance they went out. And then you saw the state of them coming into the arena, and then we saw how the first half played out. That was a hungover team, and I'm not going to get too upset about it. I understand if there are fans out there that say these guys make millions of dollars and trillions of dollars and they can't stay right. They can't avoid going out in the middle of the year. Go out during the offseason. Go out in the middle of summer. Go out before training camp. You can't keep it together for a game. I get it. If that's your perspective, that's your perspective. I try to look at sports like any other job. Like I've done the morning show plenty of times after I've been out too late. Not much recently in the recent years, but in when I was 25, when I was starting doing the morning show on B93, when that became a part of my career, 25, 26, 27, and everybody in our building was in their mid to late 20s. There were plenty of nights where we were out a little too late, past midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., with the alarm clock going off at 3.30 or 4. So I, I understand they get paid way more money, and maybe they should take it more seriously and whatever. More seriously than a country radio morning show in Sheboygan. This is a bit of an apples to oranges comparison. But I do look at it as that's their job and their guys in their mid to late 20s, early 30s, and they're in Vegas on a random weekday. They probably went out and had a good time. And then they had a 2 p.m. It's not like they played a normal 7 p.m. And the Bucks' history and Giannis's history, even though he played spectacularly yesterday, he was the only one that was really good all the way through. Giannis's history... In early morning games when they're in New York sometimes at 11 or 11.30 or they're on an ABC game at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday, 
The Bucks' history in the Giannis era, when they're not playing at 6, 7, or 8 o'clock, has not been good anyway. So you factor in Vegas, Giannis' birthday, they probably went on Wednesday, then your 2 p.m. tip time, local time, they just played sluggish. They were they looked like they were heaving. They looked like they were real sweaty early in that game. And the first half just looked a bit lost. Third quarter, everybody got the IV at halftime. Everybody got the IV transfusion. Dame came out and was hitting shots in the third quarter. Bucks got in front, but the Pacers responded. And then in the fourth quarter, back and forth until the last two or three minutes, and the Pacers were able to pull away. Not only did the Bucks appear hungover, the Pacers appeared not hungover, and that's a young, energetic team. Remember, the Bucs went to Indiana earlier in the year, and they lost there, too, by a couple of points. Now you lost this game to the Pacers in the in-season tournament. That is a team that reminds me a little bit of the Bucs from 2017 or maybe 2018, where they have a young superstar, Tyrese Halliburton, Wisco Kid. He won a state title at Oshkosh North. It's great to see a Wisconsin guy having that kind of success at that level. He is clearly going to be or already is a superstar in the league, much like Giannis was in 2017 or 2018. You could just tell he was going to be a superstar. That's what they have in Halliburton, much like the Bucks of 2017 or 2018. There are a lot of young pieces around Halliburton, and they're growing together, and they're hungry the way the Bucks were in that era. Not that they're not now, but it's a different kind of hungry when you're in your early to mid-20s, I think, in the NBA. Take it from me, a podcaster. When you're in your early to mid-20s in the NBA, and you haven't won anything, and you haven't got the MVPs or the defensive players of the year or the titles or the playoff runs, which the Pacers have not had, They were a younger team, and it meant more to them, and they were hungrier, and they didn't go out until 3 a.m. Or maybe because they're a younger team, they were able to bounce back quicker. That's also a thing, too. The Bucs are one of the oldest teams in the league. The bounce-back factor after a night in Vegas probably not as good for the Bucs as it would be for the Pacers if the Pacers did go enjoy the nightlife in Vegas a little bit. When you combine all that with the way the Bucs looked and how this clearly meant more to the Pacer franchise than the Bucs franchise, Pacers able to pull away late and they get the 128-119 to 119 win. Halliburton's the real deal. You could make a case right now on December 8th that he is maybe the top point guard in the NBA. He scored when he wanted to. What did he have last night? Did he have 30? The bigger stat to me from Halliburton last night and what he has done all year, I'm pretty sure he's averaging double-digit assists on the year. Let me just see what he did last night. Uh, Halliburton had 27 points, 15 assists, zero turnovers. Uh, If you look at a box score from any NBA game on any given night, even if the point guard on the team that you're looking at or whatever team is involved is a very good point guard, it is almost impossible in the NBA to not turn the ball over at least once or twice. 15 assists and zero turnovers for Halliburton in the win yesterday. And he did have that dagger three late. Giannis had a good game. 37-10, 37-10, and 10, 13 of 19, shooting 11 of 13 from, B, or from the free throw line. Dame had that run in the third quarter, and then it seemed like they didn't get him the ball much. I didn't understand that either. He hit those three or four threes in a row in the first half of the third quarter. Then they put a little bit of a better defender on him, but they just couldn't seem to get him the ball, and he was kind of a ghost in the fourth quarter, too. He played 42 minutes. The bench for the Bucks last night was abysmal. We're going to talk about Bobby Portis in a second. He was a minus six in the plus minus. Marjan was a minus 17. Campaign was awful. He was a minus 18. Two of nine shooting for a campaign. A.J. Green only played four minutes, and Andre Jackson Jr. got in for one minute yesterday. The bench is a little thin right now. You don't have Pat Connaughton. You don't have Jay Crowder. Maybe if they're out there, that makes a little bit of a difference. 
when you look at how heavy those legs looked like and then they got almost nothing from their bench, that did not help either in last night's matchup with the Pacers. I am curious to watch now because the Bucks now have a run of home games basically until their Christmas Day game against the Knicks. They are home on Monday against the Bulls, Wednesday against the Pacers, Saturday against the Pit. They have one, two, three, four, five, six straight home games, and they're all winnable before they go to New York for the 23rd, and then they're in New York on Christmas Day. So back-to-back at Madison Square Garden, back-to-back early tip times. That's Saturday and Monday, the 23rd and 25th. I will be curious to see how this Wednesday matchup goes against the Pacers. The Pacers do present the Bucks with some matchup issues. Primarily, they are a team that, like their name, they like to go with pace. They are the quickest team in the NBA. They are one of the youngest teams in the NBA. You saw it all day yesterday. Even after a made basket for the Bucks, the Pacers were sprinting the other way, and they were beating the heavy-legged Bucks down the floor almost every time. That's their style of play. It gives the Bucks fits. It really does because with guys like Brooke Lopez, not the fastest guys in the world to begin with, the Bucks have a lot of guys in their late 20s, early 30s, mid-30s that probably don't love playing that style or playing against that style. On top of that, the Pacers do have talent, which we saw yesterday too. If the Bucks were to meet the Pacers in a best-of-seven series in the playoffs where everything ratchets up a few notches, I'm not sure right now I'm worried about them losing that series. That could be a six- or seven-game series. Even though they're 0-2 against the Pacers now in the regular season, I'm not going to take it so far to say that I'm worried about a potential playoff matchup down the road because I think the Bucs would wear them down with size eventually. And the Bucs, being a veteran team, would know to flip the switch a bit when it is the playoffs and it's kind of win or go home in that best of seven series. I'm not scared of that yet, but I do think you have to keep your eye on the Pacers. The Pacers do present a lot of matchup problems for the Bucs that they're going to have to address. For that reason, since they're 0-2 against Indiana this year, and the Pacers are a team on the rise, now that you've lost two in a row to them, I'll be curious to see how intense the Bucs will be on Wednesday next week when the Pacers come to Fiserv Forum. So the in-season tournament comes to an end. It was dumb anyway. We didn't care about it anyway. It was one of those things where if they would have won it, great. That's a lot of fun. And if they lose it, so what? It didn't really matter anyway. The Lakers blew out the Pelicans in the second game of the night. So you end up with Pacers and Lakers taking on LeBron on Saturday night on ABC. I'm pretty sure that's the only game then in the NBA on Saturday. I guess I'm kind of curious to watch that, see how an older Lakers team deals with that Pacers team that loves to run. LeBron is not young. He's pushing 40. Anthony Davis is not young. That team is very similar to the Bucks, where they have battle-tested guys and guys that have been through the wars and won titles. But are they going to want to play in Vegas in December on a Saturday night with the kind of pace the Pacers are playing with right now and how hungry that team looks? That might be an interesting matchup on Saturday night for the in-season tournament championship game. Let's talk about college hoops. Badgers go on the road and get a conference win at Michigan State. I don't care what the Spartans look like, and they don't look like they're the Spartans of old, at least on Tuesday. And what are they, 4-4 four and four or 4-5 four and five to begin the year? It doesn't look like one of those classic Izzo teams. I don't care. How many times have we seen this Badger team go to Michigan State and get their break speed off? They go in there and they win by 13 points. Ever since that Providence loss, where Greg Gard basically called out everybody in the postgame. They haven't lost. They beat a ranked Virginia team. They beat Marquette when they were number three. And now you get a road win at Michigan State to get your first conference win. Badgers are 7-2 and two on the year, 1-0 in the Big Ten. Major test on the way. Major test? 
on the way on Saturday. They are going to take on the number one team in the country, the newly minted number one, Arizona Wildcats. It is in Arizona, a 2:15 tip time on Saturday. What's been fun about this matchup, and I don't know why this started on Twitter, the Badger fans are getting excited, and Arizona, unbeaten number one team in the country, they are excited. And this has led to a little bit of Twitter trash talk, which has led to a healthy amount of highlights that Badger fans are uploading to Twitter of the two wins they got against Arizona in 2014 and 2015 when the Badgers made the Final Four and then the subsequent year when they made the title game. In both of those runs with Kaminsky and Sam Decker and Trevon Hughes and Josh Gosser and Bronson Koenig, in both of those runs in 15 and 14, or 14 and 15, that's how the order goes, John, 15 goes after 14, they beat Arizona to, I think, get to the Final Four in each year, or at least get to the Elite Eight in one of those years. So as Arizona fans have been kind of chirping Badger fans, saying, oh, we'll see how good you look when you take on the number one team in the country on Saturday, Badger fans have been responding with highlights like this, and I've enjoyed watching every shot single one of them. Is down to this is the Sam Decker shot in 2015 with Aaron Rodgers in the front Up row. Remember that? Jefferson. Outside Decker. It's a three. Got it! <laughs> Dagger! 27 for Decker. And the way he shot it and walked away. And Nigel Hayes out there. I have really enjoyed hopping onto Twitter and seeing Badger fans uploading those highlights of some of those outstanding games against Arizona when they made the final four run in 15 and the championship game run in 2015. Pretty sure that game was the one right before. That was number one Wisconsin, number two Arizona in that regional. And then the next matchup was the Badgers taking on Kentucky and that unbeaten Kentucky team. And then nothing bad happened after that. It'll be a good acid test for this Badger team on Saturday. I don't know that I'd pick them to win. I don't know what the spread's going to be. I doubt the spread is out. Let's just see if there is one. I can't imagine we'd get that much before late tonight at midnight or something like that. No, no spread as of yet. Number 23, Wisconsin at number one, Arizona, a 2.15 tip timeout. It's going to be on ESPN on Saturday afternoon. Meanwhile, Marquette, what a bounce back for them after the disappointing loss to Wisconsin in that rivalry matchup. It was number eight, Marquette. That's how far they fell from three to eight. That's about right. They took on number 12, Texas, the eight team versus the 12th ranked team. Shaka Smart's former team, the one he came from. He said he wasn't looking for revenge. Tyler Kolick, I guess, in the postgame said that's BS. He, and he said the word. He said, ah, that's BS. That's no, there's no way that game didn't mean more to him after spending time in Texas and having to leave there and then going to Marquette right after that. They stomped him. This was never a game. After the first 10 minutes, Badger, or Badgers, Marquette had a lead of, I think, 35 at one point, and they win by 21, 86 to 65. Kolick was in control of that game the entire way. Good win. Good win at home against the top 15 team. We'll see where Texas is by the end of the year. That's one, just based on what I saw in that game, that's one where you might look back and Texas may not even be a top 25 team by the time we get to March. But as it stands right now, you beat soundly the number 12 team in the country. That's a great win. They have the matchup with Notre Dame on Saturday night. Notre Dame no longer in the Big East, right? They Are they the ACC now? I know everybody's been moving around and everybody moving to different conferences has got my brains in a blender. Yeah, they are not in the Big East anymore. So this is a non-conference matchup with the two Catholic universities, Marquette and Notre Dame, matching up 8 o'clock tip time at Pfizer Forum. That is also on Saturday night, and that'll be on Fox, on Big Fox. A couple of nationally televised college hoops games on Saturday for the Badgers, and then later in the day for Marquette. We will wrap up on the baseball winter meetings. Well, then we'll do picks. I don't think they're trading Corbin Burns, guys. They're over. The meetings are over. 
And there wasn't much of anything. Early in the week, there were rumors that the Giants were, quote, enamored. That was the word used. Enamored with Corbin Burns. Well, if you're so enamored, give us your top three prospects. <laughs> give us give us three top ten prospects for him. I don't know what the plan is right now for this Brewer team. We talked on Monday, or was it Friday, that heading into the winter meetings, it must have been Monday because Monday was the beginning of the winter meetings. We talked about then that, Heading into the offseason, I was 90%. They are going to trade Burns and trade Adamas and get whatever return you can, and we are going to be headed toward a soft rebuild, building around the young outfielders and calling up some of these young arms like Robert Gosser and Jacob Mizorowski and those guys. And it's going to take a year or two probably, and we kind of thought Pat Murphy was going to be a bridge manager to Ricky Weeks in 2025 or 2026, all that stuff. Well... Outside of that Giants rumor, there was a rumor also that maybe the Dodgers are interested in both Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas and what kind of return you'd get from them for both of those guys because both of those players would fit in L.A. You Obviously, they they hoard starting pitching and Cy Young caliber pitching. That fits their M.O., and they do have a need at shortstop where you could shift some things around on their infield if they did acquire Willie Adamas. It seems like Willie would just have a blast in L.A. with that media market and that fan base. But nothing came to fruition. And the last article that I saw that was posted, I think, by John Heyman seemed to indicate that Matt Arnold, Brewer GM, was saying that they don't expect to move them before the year. And even Scott Boris, the agent for Corbin Burns, who you feel like would be in the know there, even he said his expectation now is that Corbin Burns is going to at least begin the year in Milwaukee. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, man. I know they're coming off of a division title, and they won 90-plus games. They had the fifth-best record in the league, overall record, before absolutely imploding on themselves like a dying star in the playoffs. So maybe you're looking at, okay, we can we can make another run at it with this core. To me, then, you've got to acquire some talent. Remember way back months ago when we thought maybe Woodruff's injury wasn't going to be so bad? I threw out the idea that they could pull a 2011 and they could keep Woodruff and keep Adamas and keep Burns and add a few things and make a real run at things before you lose all of them and get nothing. The dynamic of that idea, though, shifted dramatically when we found out that Woodruff was going to be out the entire year and eventually was cut. He's not even on the team anymore. And then Craig Council, arguably the best or one of the best managers in baseball who you didn't think would ever leave you, ends up not only leaving you, but going to your hated rival 90 miles south and the Chicago Cubs and their limitless payroll. It just felt like the scene had shifted so much that that wasn't even a possibility anymore. Maybe they just see what is going to happen here in the first month or two of the year, and they feel that they can still get a decent return at the trade deadline if things go south or you're sub-500, you're not in striking distance of a wild card spot or a division title spot, then you'd trade Burns and Adamas at that point. I don't think you'd get the same return because the team getting them would only be renting them for a couple of months as opposed to an entire year. It just seems like right now that's what they're going to do. They're going to roll into the year with Pat Murphy as the coach, Adamas as the shortstop, Corbin Burns as the head guy on that rotation with Wade Miley now coming back. He would be your number two. You get Ashby back or Peralta as your number two, Miley your three. I guess I don't hate the starting rotation. You'd love to have a guy like Brandon Woodruff in there, though, still. If Burns, Peralta, and Miley are your one, two, three, and you get Ashby back as your four, Colin Ray probably is your five, and you're, I would guess you're going to sign somebody or trade for somebody or pick up somebody just to see. I think Joe Ross was a name they did pick up who did not pitch in Major League Baseball last year but has put up good numbers in the minor leagues late last year as he is returning from injury. Pick up a couple of guys like that that might have some upside, that have some experience. 
I don't know. On paper, if nothing else changes, Churio obviously is a big deal in the contract he signed, and it's it's very likely he'll be on the opening day roster now, even though Pat Murphy was he was a little throwing a little bit of shade on that. They were talking to Pat Murphy about the Churio signing, and Churio's number, I guess, is going to be number 11. Shout out Richie Sexton. Shout out Lyle Overbay or any other number 11 you can remember. That's going to be his number. They were talking to Pat Murphy about that, and he kind of scoffed and said, listen, this guy is still a minor leaguer. He's number 94 to me. You know, all in spring training, all the minor leaguers, they wear all those numbers that you would never see during the regular season. <laughs> number 94, double zero, or I don't know, what, 82 or whatever. They always wear those jerseys. That's what he was insinuating. Oh, listen, I'm glad for him. I'm glad he got the contract. I'm glad he's a big part of the future plans. As of right now, he's number 94 to me. And when he gets to earn that number 11, then we'll give it to him. It was just the exact kind of grizzled old baseball guy answer you were kind of hoping for. This dude is not going to be gifted anything just because he signed this massive contract. That seemed to be what Pat Murphy was saying. But when you look at this team on paper... Without Woodruff and with the offense making no real additions outside of Churio, and I don't know that you can count on even a phenom rookie to give you the kind of boost that offense is going to need from what we saw last year, you've got to add then, right? <laughs> if you're going to roll into this year and risk losing Burns and Adamas, not getting a lot from them at the deadline or getting nothing for them if they stick with the team the entire year, it feels like you've got to go out and then get at least a bat, a serviceable bat for the middle of the order and another starting pitcher, at least. I don't mind the back end of the bullpen right now. I guess I don't mind the starting rotation, even though obviously it looks a lot better if you have a guy like Woodruff in there. If you have a co-ace, things look better. Hot take, John. That take was ice cold. <laughs> that take was pizza that's been left out on the oven overnight and has a bug crawling on it. Yes, the rotation would be better with Woodruff. If that's the plan, though, and you're just going to kind of see if they can start the season hot or how they'll be competing by the deadline, I mean, maybe that's the plan. Maybe you go to the deadline, and if they are sitting there and they're within a game or two, or they're in first place, or they're leading a wild card, maybe that's the point where you would go and acquire a bat or rent a bat for the remainder of the year. I just thought there was no way we were going to get through the winter meetings and still have both Adamas and Burns on the team, and we do, and now it seems like that is going to be the plan heading into the year. That was not something I saw coming. All right, let's make a few picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to 1 on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. Hey, guess what? Another winning week. Huh? Huh? I haven't gone. I know there are a billion gambling podcasts out there right now with gambling being legal pretty much everywhere at this point. We have to have one of the best winning percentages this year. Put us against anybody. Put us against the ESPN bets. Put us against the guys at FS1, at DraftKings, the FanDuel podcast, all of the ringer. We have to have, and you can go back and listen to every podcast we've done. We're not lying about this record. I've lied about a lot of things in my life. My name's not even John. I've lied about many things in my life. But... I would never lie about a gambling record, and you can go back and listen and then go and look at the schedule and results from every week. This is a legitimate record. We are we went 4-1 and one last week. We are now 42-27-3. We are up 15 units on the year. There cannot be another podcast out there that's up 15 units. I refuse to believe it. There probably is. But not many. 42-27-3 with college and NFL picks? Come on. We do not have college football this weekend. It's going to be a while before we get into bowl season. That's where we'll lose some of this money. I can't resist, even though you don't know who the players are. 
and the teams don't look the same once you get to bowl season and there's people going to the draft that were a big part of their success and all that stuff. I can't resist betting on those bowls, especially when we get to the next week or two and they're on in the middle of the day on a Tuesday and nothing else is going on. All right, I'll throw a little bit on the over. That's where we'll bleed some of this money away. No college football yet. Bowl season not underway. We only have three. There's only three NFL games I like. I am going to take the over in Lions and Bears. Total points, 42. They just played two weeks ago a tight game. The Lions came back and won at 31-26. That was well over 42. I realize the Bears just played a game against the Vikings where the final score was 12-10. to Lions don't have a great defense. Bears don't have a great defense. Lions have an excellent offense. And even with that 12-10 to final in Minnesota... I do think Justin Fields is getting a little better, and DJ Moore has been pretty solid for them. 42 feels low. I'll take over the over on the 42 total points in Lions and Bears. I am going to take the Texans minus three and a half in New York, taking on the Jets. That Jets organization is a train wreck. Aaron Rodgers is right in the middle of that train wreck. Who could have seen this happening? Who is responsible for this? They cut Tim Boyle. He made two starts. Now he's cut. They're going to try to go back to Zach Wilson, even though Zach Wilson said pass. There was that report this week where they said, well, I think we're going to go back to Zach Wilson. And Zach Wilson reportedly said, I would prefer not to get killed behind this terrible offensive line. And if you have any other options, I guess I'll start if you need me to. But if you have anybody else, you ever done that in your life when somebody calls you to fill in at work or something? I guess I'd be available. But if you can find anybody else, I'll be your last resort. That's kind of what Zach Wilson was telling the Jets. Still have a good defense. The Texans are just on the rise, though. And C.J. Stroud, I'll take them. Minus three and a half on the road in New York. And then I'm going to take the Niners. After they burned me last week, I took the Eagles plus three at home against the Niners, and the Niners blew their doors off. Seattle seems to be a team on the descend, and the Niners look like they are going to get honed in on the number one overall seed in the NFC. Niners are minus 11. That's a big number, but I'll take a minus 11 at home against Seattle. Texans minus three and a half in New York against the Jets, and the over on Lions and Bears on 42 total points. That'll do it for us here on your Friday. Now, as we said earlier, We will be doing Tuesday, Friday next week. We'll wait for the Packer-Giants game to play out on Monday. Two Monday night games this week, too, with no real reason, and they're both starting at the same time. I do not understand that. The other Monday night game is the Titans in Miami. Miami heavy favorites. They're almost two touchdown favorites. I kind of want to bet on the Packers to win by a touchdown, but I'm scared. I'm scared of what a young team is going to do, like we talked about, in a situation now where they are expected to win, and they're on the road, and it's in prime time. There are two Monday night games, though. We will wait for that game to play out, hopefully coming back on a victory Tuesday with a team sitting at 7-6 and in a playoff spot, having won four in a row. Tuesday, Friday podcast next week. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.